0: Hello, welcome back everyone. This is Alpha Bunga. Bunga. We are here today to do a short Brexit update. Uh, we're here to talk about the Brexit deal that was agreed between the UK government and EU negotiators uh, just this past week, Tuesday the 13th of November. We actually used to talk quite a lot about Brexit in our first year, and then we felt we had to rein it in because we were doing too much of it, and suddenly realized that we haven't done a show on Brexit in ages. And this, despite two Alpha Bunga Bunga producers be, um, being British... Uh, and being involved with a pro-Brexit left-wing campaigning network called The Full Brexit. So we've been a bit remiss, and we figured we'd do an update now before we come back to discussing Brexit in the new year with all four of us, plus a very special guest. Today, though, it's just myself, Alex Hochuli, and Phil Cunliffe to catch us up on what the deal is about and looking forward to what might actually happen in a very uncertain situation. So it's been two years and five months since the Brexit referendum, which was a big shock, one of those big shocks of 2016. And since then, there's been a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, incompetence and confusion and drift. But now that the UK Prime Minister Theresa May has finally presented a deal, it's it's a deal that seems to piss everyone off. It pisses off all sides. No one seems really happy with it. The UK will remain within the EU for a period, but being an exclusively rule taker, uh, it doesn't seem to be a definite exit, and it still leaves some of the Tory right unsatisfied having to pay out to the EU. So let's talk about this. How does this deal leave everyone a bit unsatisfied?
1: So um, everyone is angry with the deal because it dissatisfies everybody in different particular ways. The Tory, the Tory pro brexiters associated with um, Jacob Rees-Mogg in the Tory backbenches and the so-called DRG. They're opposed to it, along with many other pro-Brexiters, uh, because it still keeps us tightly bound within the European Union past a transition date. There's all sorts of um, specific problems with what's um, the detail of the deal. The deal itself runs to 585 pages. And there's a blog on The Spectator um, which has identified 40 different points so-called horror points within it, which have um, outraged all pro-Brexiters or most pro-Brexiters to do with the status of Northern Ireland, to do with the fact that there's no specified transition point in the document itself. It's just got, um, you know, that the transition can be unilaterally expanded. For instance, the actual date at which we leave the European Union can be unilaterally extended, and it doesn't even give a, a definitive date. It just says 2000 XXX so not even 2000 not even mm. uh, within the first two decades but potentially much later right they didn't even bother to fill in the detail of when of what date deadline there might be for Um, making a definitive break within the European Union. It's
0: notable, I think, to to that Spectator article identifying 40 problems with it. The government actually then responded and the Spectator published a government's response going through line by line saying, no, this isn't true. Well, actually, and this was actually agreed beforehand and we were always going to pay a certain amount. And actually, that is that 2000 and XX is just a placeholder. Um, Some of the answers seem convincing. I don't know. What did you think of this?
1: So they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're attempting a rearguard action to try and um, to try and defend the deal, which is the first time that there's been any actual political activity on this kind of scale. I think, which is uh, seems. In some way, a genuine attempt to defend something that has been agreed and to say that it's in the nation's interest. And I think it speaks to the fact the confidence that Theresa May has that she can face down any internal challenge within the within the Tory party, which I think she probably can. Just to say if there was a vote of no confidence in her mounted by the pro-Brexit faction of the Tory party, I think she'd be able to face down a vote of no confidence. And I think also the leadership of the Tory party, um, the pro-deal sections of the Tory party have been terrified into have been terrified into um, accepting this as a deal, accepting what the EU has done as the deal, what the EU has offered, because... Uh, they're terrified of the consequences. They're terrified of the disruption to the status quo. They're terrified of their own lack of ability to manage political disruption. And ultimately, they're the conservative party. They're supposed to be the party of the status quo. They're supposed to be the party of managing things rather than overseeing or leading um, genuine disruption and change. But and with-
0: I guess th- there would be the argument, well, two things. One, that they're also frightened of the government falling uh, and that... There would be a Corbyn government who'd sweep in, um, and the other thing is that there is a section of the Tory Party which does want disruption because they have a vision of a of a Britain as Singapore or perhaps better like Bangladesh, a low wage, low regulation, low tax space which engages in in commerce. I mean that that is the one section which seems to be leading Brexit.
1: So two things. Uh, it's I think part of the reason that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, can hold on to her position, is because she can rally her support by threatening a credible prospect of a Corbyn government or a shrunken Tory majority were the Tories to go into a general election. The second thing is it's true that the, the only people who have any kind of um, willingness to consider political change are an odd faction of the Tory party, and this is part of the bizarre topsy-turvy aspects of Brexit and politics today that it's the conservative party which within them have a faction that is willing to, I mean, that are effectively ideological rather than genuinely conservative, that have a vision that they would like to see through with Brexit. Um, And that in itself is striking and um, an interesting and important point to be aware of because it's the left, um, which has tended to be so strongly pro-Remain and pro-European Union, particularly the liberal left middle classes, And various sections of the elite that have been so attached to the status quo, and they've effectively been um, the conservative, they've been the actual conservative force in the referendum. Whereas section the pro Brexit section of the Tory party have been, um, have all sorts of, I mean, most of them are ridiculous visions. And this is, I mean, it's an important point to note that there's such little actual political vision. Mm-hmm. Um, the only people who are actively pro Brexit, like you say, are kind of boring free market libertarians. Who have um, who just want to talk about trade deals right and yeah. taxes and regulate and they have no actual political vision for the, or idea of political renewal
0: it's a, it's a, a doubling down on neoliberalism basically
1: yeah it's a doubling down on neoliberalism it's some um, reassertion of nationalism it's a kind of um, camp pantomime um, playing up of um, of British sovereignty It's sovereignty and dress with none of the actual exercise of political discretion that could come with it. Um, So, I mean... Well, so it's interesting.
0: So let me jump in because it seems that you mentioned earlier that, you know, discussion of what's in Britain's national interest. And it seems that the discussion, the debate, and I'm observing this from abroad, but from that distance, it seems that the discussion is only about what is in Britain's national interest. And so the question of class and in whose interest the national interest might be, doesn't really come into the debate. And so if you're looking at the national interest and maintaining all other things equal, then it seems obvious that, well, Brexit's probably quite a bad deal because if Britain's in an economically poor situation with real wages having uh, declined 10% over the past 10 years, uh, the worst performance in the eurozone other than Greece, uh, productivity is down, investment is down, R&D spending is down, that if you were to maintain everything the same and just leave the EU and therefore have more trade friction well, that's pretty shit, who would want that? And that seems to be the level on which this is discussed.
1: Um, I think that's right, but it isn't even formulated in the sense of a national interest. So very few people, I mean, Theresa May talks about it, as, or at least is trying to claim that language at the moment in defending the deal that she's negotiated with the EU. But generally, it's not been something which has been very current, because I think um, nobody has any sense of formulating some kind of collective vision some idea of what is in the political interest of the nation. So it's an idea which itself has been absent from the debate. And you're right. I mean, keeping all things, which is the problem with the entirety of the debate, is that everyone assumes everything is kept the same. And the only thing that changes is leaving the European Union. And then when it's framed in those terms, then obviously it seems like this terrible blow, um, which has deranged the middle classes and the liberal left. Um, But it just speaks to the absence of a willingness to um, offer an alternative, or a willingness to mobilize to enact political change.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we talked a lot about this in our knobs episode and in other times about the neoliberal order breakdown syndrome and the inability to cope with political change and really understand that change is there is something there to be seized and not to be passively accepted. As a consequence, Brexit is treated as a technical rearrangement of trading relationships to be done at a diplomatic level uh, rather than a profound constitutional change. And even saying constitutional change sound, makes it sound a little bit dry and something that, you know, the question of laws on paper rather than a profound change in British society, um, which at its very basic level is what Brexit was about. Um, but, but yet... You find a situation now where it's like: Is the EU actually Hotel California? You can check out, but you can never ever leave.
1: Yeah. So this is the this is the description which has been used both by the former Greek finance minister um, Yanis Varoufakis and the conservative um, conservative. Commentator, columnist for the Daily Mail, Peter Hitchens, described the EU as Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. And certainly, that seems to be, the, I mean, the case with um, with the difficulty that Britain has in extricating itself from the European Union. The fact that um, the Italians and their standoff at the moment under um, under Salvini over the budget that they're still the Italian population, the Italian voters want to remain part of the European Union. The fact that the European Union, um, you know, forced the standoff with the Greek referendum in 2015 to stay in the to stay in the Europe effectively, you know, calling the bluff of the Greek of the Syriza government and to stay in the European Union. So you you, you can check out, but you can never leave. And that seems to be the way the way it's playing out. and it. It's well the again, the I deal mean,
0: the deal is a good example of checking out but not leaving because yeah, exactly. the Britain would lose a lot of say over how these rules are formed formulated uh, but it just has to accept them so it's like yeah well we just become a passive recipient
1: yeah so you formally you formally you formally checked out but you can't actually leave the hotel and it's a very it's i mean it's exactly it's exactly the way in which the European Union functions and it shows i think also the fact that it's um it has to rely on coercive disciplining and containing of its members. And that's, I think, an important point to draw out. It can't, it is threatened by um, withdrawal. So even though still technically it's something in which the member states have the right to withdraw from and they still formally retain their sovereignty and their independence, the fact that the EU struggles and must contain its member states, and it can let you check out, but it can't let you leave, speaks to the fact that ultimately, it requires and it's reliant more and more on coercion and fear in order to maintain its integrity
0: and coherence. So I think it would be good to get on to the left and Corbyn's position and Labour's position. Um, But it might just be worth giving a brief explanation of what your view, what my view is of the EU, um, and why one should be against it. This might be basic, but I I appreciate that many of our listeners uh, aren't in Britain, a uh, gr- great majority of them aren't, many of them aren't in Europe. So actually uh, spelling out what this is, because um, I guess the, the default view is that it's a, maybe a bit anti-democratic, but that it's basically a union of a solidaristic union of nation states. So
1: so it's understood as a, as a club. A club of countries getting together to improve their relations, to improve peaceful relations on a continent that historically has been ravaged by war and terrible um, disagreements and conflicts. And it's essentially a trading club which improves relations and makes a greater likelihood of peace. Um, That's the... That's the That's, wrong. that's untrue. Yeah, that's, that's fake the, news. That's the mistaken image. Yeah, exactly. That's the mistaken image of the European Union. Because to be a member of that club requires profound internal transformation. And it, re- it effectively means a transition from uh, a nation state into a member state of the European Union. What that transition involves is as you become a member of this club, it means as part of entering the club and drawing up agreements with the other member states means that you have to remove more and more of your politics and public decision-making from the public arena, from domestic contestation within the within the state. It has to be removed from public dispute, from public disagreement, from political change, insulated from all of that, and put into this realm of transnational agreement. So it becomes part of the rules of the club. So what it means, in effect, is that as you become more deeply entwined within the club, you, the, in each country, the electorate loses out in terms of what it has the right to change or what it has the right to um, – where politicians, domestic politicians have a right to say or change particular parts of legislation. So the deeper you become involved in the club, the less democratic – the member states become. So it's not just a neutral trading agreement and it's not just a way to maintain peace on the continent of Europe. It's a way in which governments have insulated themselves from the democratic demands or expectations of their citizenry. So it's, it involves not just external trading arrangements or external limits on sovereignty, but also an internal transformation, which means less popular sovereignty, less democracy.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important also to to say that what might drive the EU, as you've said, is the desire of national elites to insulate decisions from democratic oversight, democratic decision making. Well, at the same time, as the EU operates not in the space between nations, but inheres itself into the lives of nations uh, through various mechanisms.
1: And it's important, I think, I mean, this is, again, the same way like it's the Hotel California you can check it and never leave, but also the response of the middle classes in Britain to a democratic vote. The Brexit derangement syndrome, the knobs syndrome that we've talked about on the podcast represents the um, attachment of significant portions of elites and middle classes within European Union member states To the European Union. So they like the fact that democracy is constrained. They like the fact that the plebeian orders, lower classes, the working classes are constrained by these technical and regulatory regimes that come from Europe. They like the fact that there's less popular say, and it's something that they're comfortable with. And as a result of the Brexit vote, what we have effectively is an insurrection against democracy by the middle classes in Britain, by significant sections. In fact, the majority of the elite, the capitalist and the political elite and the senior sections of the civil service, an insurrection against democracy, an unwillingness to be bound by democratic outcomes, an insistence to revisit the vote, an insistence to try and keep us bound within the European Union as much as possible. And so that speaks to the transformation that's happened within member states of the European Union.
0: So I might disagree with you slightly about the degree to which this is in kind of liberal middle class people's consciousness as being specifically anti-democratic. Um, I think it might just be a commitment to a thin cosmopolitanism and the complete lack of political imagination and a vision of any other way the politics could function, that they're wedded so, to that.
1: well, so a pro-Brexit, there's a pro-Brexit blogger called Pete North, and he said, he made a very good description of this. He said, so explaining to a neo-Blairite Remainer the need for self-determination in democracy is like trying to explain a raincoat to a fish. They just have, they have no concept of it. They have no need of it. They simply don't see that there's any purpose in order that you or value to being able to create the laws that you're bound by and to be part of a collective polity in which everyone has right to participation. It's simply something which is inconceivable to them. So you're right. It's not in their consciousness that it's undemocratic, but because they simply don't think in those terms they simply think in terms of bureaucratic convenience, in terms of technocratic mm. efficiency. Um, you know, am I going to be, am I going to get a bad exchange rate against the euro when I change pounds? Am I going to be inconvenienced when I go to um, my holiday villa in Tuscany or my academic conference abroad and I have to wait a bit of extra time in a queue on a passport desk because we're no longer members of the European Union? They don't have any sense of the significance of political interaction and political decision-making and political agency.
0: Meanwhile, for the left, the notion of popular sovereignty should be the sine qua non of any sort of leftist politics. What is the left's position? Because basically, um, Corbyn has deliberately played a game of uh, conscious ambiguity from the time of the referendum up until now. Uh, To some extent, one can explain that through the necessities of realpolitik within the Labour Party, that that Corbyn has had to solidify his own position and has not been willing to alienate the kind of pro-remain section of Labour members, which is something like 70% of Labour members, while at the same time having to represent um, voters. And most, I think, a majority of uh, Labour voting constituencies are pro-Leave. So there's that ambiguity within the Labour Party uh, that Corbyn has had to deal with. Recently, Corbyn has just said, in response to Theresa May's deal, that a second referendum would be an option for the future, but it's not an option today. Asked then how he would vote on a referendum. He said, I don't know how we would vote. I don't know what the options would be at that time. And asked, can you stop Brexit? He said, we can't stop it because on our own, we don't have the votes. These are all quite evasive answers. They're deliberately ambiguous, uh, which actually ends up pissing off a lot of Remainers who say, why isn't he doing anything to stop Brexit? He should be stopping Brexit. He's the missing piece of the puzzle to stop Brexit. And it probably leaves a lot of uh, working class voters who voted Leave feeling a little bit cold because he doesn't seem to represent what they voted for. How do you interpret that? I think we might dissent a little bit, you and I, on how we see this, but Phil...
1: No, I I mean, I think you portray the, um, you portray the, you explain the deliberate ambiguity without drawing any political uh, conclusions from it, though. I mean, it speaks to um, a deeply cynical and opportunistic strategy, which is trying to maintain this alliance between Northern, between leave voting, working class people, voters, Labour voters in Northern cities and southeastern metropolitan urban youth elite, pro-EU people who want to remain, and that's not all elite. Effective. Not all
0: elite. There's lots of working class people within London as well as Manchester, Liverpool, and so on who voted leave. Excuse me, who, who voted remain?
1: Who, they did vote leave, and there are some people who voted remain. But you know, they're they're not all elite, but they're bound to. Those are people who are bound to elite interests. Um, well, the issue okay, is but th- 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 that's,
0: that's problematic because you can also say that there are elite interests in leave. Okay, it's a minority of the elite, but nevertheless, I think it's, it, it is very divisive. It, Brexit it, is divisive, makes, it, even within th- the working class.
1: I don't think it makes sense to um, to fudge the issue to that degree. I think the interests of the status quo and the interests of Remain are the elite interests. The fact that there are rich people on the side of leave – does not make it a um an elite project. It is the elite in sense of the corporations, the financial newspapers, the int- the interests of the bourgeoisie and the interests of um, the leading sections of the political civil service academic um, and media elites are all served by remaining within the European Union or remaining as close as possible to it. So I mean, remain is undoubtedly on the side of the elite. Now, that said, I mean, not and also, you know, as well as the minority in the outcome of the referendum, now, what you said was right. I mean, it's a Labour Party's electoral coalition between working class leave voters in the north and remain voting southerners, middle class youth and so on. The issue is that how to maintain that, um, how to maintain that coalition. And they try to maintain it through this policy, like you say, of um deliberate ambiguity the issue for them though is i think and this is the problem so i mean i think the it's it's uh, cynical and opportunistic in being so evasive and sending mixed signals to both sides the issue to them is that they haven't resolved the political questions of what they stand for and i think that is problematic for them because a corbyn government what would a corbyn say there is say let's kind of draw out a scenario say that um Theresa May can survive a no-confidence vote within the Tory party, so she can't be ousted. And there has yet been, there's so far, there has still not been um, a sufficient number of Tory MPs who have um, come out for her to be ousted. So I think, I think she can survive a no-confidence vote. It's not been called yet, mm. but I think she could survive one. However, I don't think that the deal that she has will get through Parliament. There's...
0: Significant, Which will be sometime um, in mid-December, right? And I agree with you, it'll it doesn't look will ex- like be It's pass. expected.
1: Yeah, expected soon. So there's sufficient anger in the Tory party over it. Remainers, many remainers are dissatisfied. And the Labour Party have said that it doesn't meet their concerns. And so they'll vote it down as well. It's very difficult to see. Even with, and it's even with Labour rebels voting against the Labour Party line, I don't think there'd be many of them. It's very difficult to see how this deal could get through Parliament. If the deal doesn't get through parliament, it's very unlikely that the EU will rene- will be willing to renegotiate and Theresa May's credibility will be shattered. If that goes to a, se- if that goes to a general election then, I don't think – I think we're likely – it'd be hard to call, but I think we're, whoever wins, Tory or Labour, it'll be the same position again. A government with a small – struggling with a very small majority. Mm. If, let's say then the Labour Party won the election, what would they do? If they have all remain voters, will vote Labour. So either they can, um, they're in the position where they have to either um, effectively prolong Article 50 or seek to renegotiate and then prolong Article 50 and renegotiate a deal with the European Union. And anything that moves towards time to extending our uh, transition period or remaining within the European Union works towards the interests of stasis, um, creating apathy, exhaustion, disenchantment, disillusion. With political possibility, and I think that will inevitably work in the favour of Remain and the elite interests that wish to bind us mm. as tightly as possible to the European Union. So I think it's not simply um, it's not simply that it's a cynical and opportunistic strategy for Corbyn and Macdonald to be ambivalent and ambiguous about where they stand on these questions. It will also seriously thwart and undermine their political room for manoeuvre, were they to come into power?
0: Well, I think there's a the thing that whoever carries out Brexit is going to be defeated by Brexit, perhaps fatally damaged by it. Uh, so there is a sense that it would be better if the Tories would lead a proper Brexit and then Labour would take power in a post-Brexit Britain rather than having to oversee it. And see. either they see through a kind of very soft Brexit, similar to what Theresa May's deal has proposed, perhaps with certain improved terms here and there, but these are at the end of the day, kind of details, uh, which leaves a lot of uh, pro-Leave people oh, unsatisfied. Okay, but, or but, that they, or that they crash out in a no-deal Brexit, uh, which I think probably, at least in the short term, does damage to the British economy, which will end up reflecting very badly on whoever happens to be in power then, who was left holding the can at the time.
1: So, but this, again, it goes back to the earlier problem, which is that nobody has a vision that can contain the disruption of no deal, a a genuine break with the European Union, and look to be able to um, undertake the kind of political change, the institutional innovation, the social creativity that would be needed to engage in a project of national renewal or offering any kind of political vision for leaving a democratic renewal. So it's... You know they're all in the same position now. I think. Yeah. You're no. Right. I guess. Hang on. Think...
0: But th- there is a thing that there is there are people there who who are near power who do have a vision uh, and who do have a sense, a long held sense that the EU was inimical to working class interests, and that is Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Uh, And yet they seem unwilling to take the risk, and it is a genuine risk. To themselves, to be unilaterally in favor of, or rather, unequivocally in favor of Brexit, and actually see that through and present their vision, which would involve nationalisation and and you know breaking all the kind of rules that the EU impedes, such as state aid rules and so on.
1: That's right, and I think and it's um, Jeremy Corbyn was the only one to draw attention to the fact that the original Chequers deal proposed by Theresa May some time ago. Um, is was limiting state aid rules. So the limits set by the European Union on, because the European Union fixes and locks in neoliberal strategies as part of the rules by which the club is governed, it means that it has competition law, which um, limits, what, um, limits the discretion of the state in offering various kinds of developmental or regional policies or efforts to boost whatever it might be, different parts of the country, they can all be severely limited by the rules on state aid. And Jeremy Corbyn was the only one who drew attention to the fact that the Tories were only talking about trade deals and were happy to accept the state aid limits of the EU. So all of this is true. And you're right when you say that it speaks to the weakness of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, that they're unable to put forward that vision. So again, it goes back to the same thing. I think You know, deep, what they would probably like if they could see it, would be, like you say, that the Tories lead a no deal, um, and then that we leave the European Union without a deal. There's a general election, the Labour Party come into power, and then there's no need for us to renegotiate. The Mm. last thing that Jeremy Corbyn and John McConnell would want is to be in power and be in the position of having to renegotiate with the European Union, because they will be put under intolerable pressure by their voters, by their Remain voters, who have rallied who have um all kind of flocked to the labor party that's a position they don't want to be in so it's this incredible concatenation of um opportunism weakness political weakness ideological lack of vision cowardice isolation difficulty between both major political parties um the lay you know the labor party leadership john mcdonald and jeremy corbyn would prob i think most likely it's in their interest that the tories conduct a no, unconduct a mm. no deal brexit yeah um, the Tory party can is unable to, and the Tory, the pro Brexit factions of the Tories don't seem strong enough to oust May. Everything is characterized by lassitude, weakness, incompetence, and division. <laughs> all right, all right. All uh, okay,
0: okay. But there is another uh, issue which we haven't considered, and it is well. Let's see how probable it is, which would be a second referendum. And I think we have to be clear what a second referendum would mean. So. There were big demonstrations this past month uh, demanding a second referendum, a people's vote. Um, I think we can dismiss that pretty easily in saying that there has already been a mandate for Brexit. All this stuff of we didn't really know what we were voting for when we were vote when we voted for is just a sneaky way of reversing Brexit through the back door. Now, it is still the case that we might have a- another referendum. Um that would probably speak to what you've just said, which is the political class's lack of vision and uh, inability to see through Brexit and kind of passing the buck to a kind of plebiscitary form of resolving the issue. I think my position, at least, is that I generally would be against another referendum. But if one were to happen, it would it could not have remain as an option. It would have to have presented two different leave options. One, a specific deal, such as the one may negotiated, and no deal. Uh, You could say, well, we need to have the full range of options explored, so you should have three or four options on the ballot paper. But then that gives you the problem that there's no way to achieve a majority of the country in favor of a specific option, and you end up in the same situation that you're in now, with a lot of confusion and division.
1: I think that's right. However, I think that the the need for, I mean, the turn to plebiscitarianism in British politics is actually, it's part of becoming a member state. I mean, it's part of the integration into the European Union. So as the political elite and this, the governing elite kind of withdraw from engagement with the populace and retreat into networking with other elites around Europe, by definition, the connecting institutional political links between voters and rulers uh, become frayed. So you turn less towards institutionalized representation and more towards plebiscitarian forms of government. So the fact that plebiscitarianism has become institutionalized in the UK speaks to how degraded representative politics in Britain is.
0: Mm.
1: So it's a problem. The, the degradation of representative politics, um, what the political scientist Peter Mayer called the void, is the central problem of British politics. And the EU itself is an expression of that.
0: And this is something that should have been resolved, really, in the 2017 general election. We did an episode on it shortly after, and you would imagine that this would have been a moment to fight over your vision of Brexit, that you have a Lexit and a right-wing Brexit being fought out. That really didn't materialize, did it? Uh, no, and that's a problem, happen. that that and the I, institution it, of parliament isn't actually acting as a representative container for, for society.
1: Yeah, and it's for that reason, the lack of effective re- political representation, that I think as, as the um, impasse of this current deal seems to be there's no way in which it can move forward, it can't get through parliament, um, then it's most likely that we will come, whoever wins the next election, I think, the odds on, uh, it's more and more likely that we're going to get a second referendum. It's very hard to envisage what it might look like for the reasons that you say, because if you did have two leave options, I think that would be seen as illegitimate to those who would say that um, the significant, powerful and significant proportion of the population with and most of the money and power would say it needs to have a remain option on the ballot Mm -hmm. paper as well. So it's very hard to see how you would construct a referendum that would be seen as legitimate by all sides, or alternatively, if it was seen as legitimate, you would have the problem that you said, where if you had a three-way choice or a four-way choice, you would never be able to construct a majority that would be that would have the, the legitimacy of the outcome. However, I, I think, I mean, clearly, uh, I think the sheer incompetence and impasse of political of our po- politicians and political parties will force them almost uh, inevitably to return. To kind of throw it back to the people and to ask them for another ask them for another response. So I think the odds on a, the odds are shortening on a um, on a referendum. Unfortunately, I think it would be a disaster because it would it would be effectively um, again perpetuating hotel calip. You know, prolonging the state yeah, of hotel. Nothing California. can really
0: change. There is no yeah. alternative.
1: Exactly, it would reinforce that message. Politics. Your vote is meaningless. We will keep on asking you to vote until we get the answer that we want, that um, political participation in the formal structures of liberal democracy is utterly void and meaningless, and that political participation is also empty.
0: And, you know, it I would... think there's, there's a, a terrible irony to that, if should it come to pass, which is that lots of liberals and some of the left as well have portrayed Brexit as a kind of right-wing populist move, xenophobic, even racist, uh Despite the evidence that a lot of people who voted for Leave did it in the interest of change, of shaking the system, um, of taking back control in some sense, uh, and that it wasn't purely driven by xenophobic anti-immigrant reaction. That said, if this second referendum comes to pass and that Remain were to win, that the whole Brexit project... To the extent that it's a project uh, and not a sequence of events, which it looks more like. But anyway, to the extent that that would that this project comes apart, I think there would be such a disillusionment with democracy that would might actually give force to some quite nasty right-wing forces because the other major parties have been unable to see through uh, the democratic mandate that they were given
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, you know, that's a significant and likely outcome. but it shouldn't be, um, at the same by the same token, I mean, the issue is that democracy shouldn't be seen as a problem. It should be seen as it is always part of the solution. So to I think um you know, I think it's likely that you would see um not only apathy but also the development of um, extremist discontent if we were in the situation where there was a second referendum and uh, remain one. So, but all I'm saying, I suppose, is that the issues are larger than it shouldn't be um, another version of Project Fear. And to keep in mind, not to terrify people with the thought of uh, revanchist extremism, which is the line that Owen Jones and others have taken. We can't have a second referendum. Because we'll get um, because the xenophobes and the bigots will overrun the country. No, no,
0: it's it's not a consequentialist argument. The point is just that if that happens, that will be one of the consequences. I mean, it would no, be, I, as we've discussed. Oh, it's, as we discussed, it's wrong to have a second referendum, which might reverse a decision which was already taken. Uh, it would be deeply undemocratic, and it would also those deeply undemocratic moments do lead to quite right-wing, uh, xenophobic, and and nationalist Absolutely. out and authoritarian outcomes.
1: All I'm saying is I think also it's important, though, to bear, you know, that already already this narrative, which is um, already this narrative is being used in order to um, clamp down on any on to try and resolve the internal problems of the Labour Party um, by people like Owen Jones and Paul Mason. So I think that's only my point is that's worth bearing in mind as well. But again, it speaks to their fear of democratic politics and their fear of the masses. They already think that um, Brexit is essentially xenophobia, racism, an upsurge of hatred of migrants and so on, which doesn't fit any of the evidence or the polls um, either you know uh, before or since. But
0: and indeed, again, to, to the extent that that does exist, and I think we shouldn't um, ignore the fact that there is a body of, of the British population which does hold those views, is the fact that the absence of left leadership on Brexit since before the referendum, all the way up till now, has confirmed the fact that Brexit is a right-wing thing um, and that it, in some ways it's a great missed opportunity. I think we should finish up here, but I think yes, it's worth pointing out that the game isn't up just yet uh, and that there'll be a lot more to come on this uh, and perhaps the Labour Party will be able to seize the initiative in one form or another. So we'll be back with more on Brexit in the new year, around March when... Britain is meant to formally leave. Shit might happen before then, and we might be back with something uh, before then. But for now, you're listening to this on a Monday morning. We are back on... Thursday with uh, Will Davis talking about emotional politics Uh, lots of issues which actually resonate quite a lot with what we've just been talking about Uh, if there's any more on Brexit that you want us to discuss or stuff that you think that we were just wrong about or that we completely missed out, uh, do get in touch on Twitter email, Facebook and so on Uh, we are back on Thursday as I just said catch you later, bye bye I been a rough night, and I hate the fucking Eagles, man.